The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Borre, Part 2, The Rebirth, The Enlightenment. The time of history that we call the Enlightenment began in Europe during the 1600s. It was a time of exploration and rediscovery, particularly a rediscovery of the philosophy of the ancient Greeks. And like the Greeks, Enlightenment philosophers asked many of the same questions, such as, what is the world made of? How can we know anything for certain? The question of epistemology. What is the difference between good and evil? Yes, these were the same questions that the Greeks asked, but now they were being informed by centuries of science, literature, history, multicultural experiences, and, of course, the written philosophy of the Greeks. In our last lecture, we looked briefly at the philosophy of Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, and Baruch Spinoza. Thomas Hobbes was known for his materialism, and he would contrast with the idealism of George Berkeley, who we'll study today. John Locke was known for empiricism, and his contrast would be with Baruch Spinoza and rationalism. And finally, in this lecture, we're going to discover the tensions between faith and atheism. Faith will be represented by the philosophy of Gottfried Leibniz and atheism by Pierre Bayle. George Berkeley. Bishop George Berkeley was born on March 12, 1685, at Dysart Castle in Ireland. He attended Trinity College in Dublin, where he studied, among other things, the philosophy of John Locke. In 1709, Berkeley wrote an essay toward a new theory of vision. In this book, he asked if a man born blind suddenly recovered his sight, what would he see? Now, Berkeley reasoned that this man, newly gifted with sight, would only see a meaningless array of qualities. And this man would interpret those qualities as being in his mind, and certainly not extend their source any further than his eyes. Only repeated connection between the sights that he sees and the same items that he later touched would lead him to learn about shapes, distances, and so on. The only experience of which he could really be sure was that the impressions were in his mind. Now, it's interesting to note that later operations that actually restored sight to people who had been blind supported Berkeley's theory. Space, therefore, is a mental construct, an extension of the qualities which can be viewed. So space is really a matter of coordinating the relationships between what we see and what we experience 
through what we touch. And we will see this idea of space being a mental thing recurring again in the theory of Immanuel Kant. In 1710, George Berkeley wrote The Principles of Human Knowledge. If, as Locke said, all knowledge comes through the senses, then how can we know nothing that does not come through the senses? How can we know anything beyond the senses? Extension in space, the shapes of things, their resistance to touch, their colors, tastes, smells, all of these do in fact come through the senses. But when does matter come through the senses? Does it come through when you see matter or when you feel matter or taste it? All you ever experience through the senses are the qualities of matter, never the substance of matter. Matter, therefore, the material world, is a theory without evidence. And since the atheism of Berkeley's day relied a great deal on materialism, Berkeley felt that he had to give that atheism a knockout punch. Now, of course, it's not just atheists who believe in matter. Nearly everyone does. It's common sense. Dr. Samuel Johnson, Dr. Johnson, thought he gave the perfect rebuttal to Berkeley's idea that all we can ever know is what we sense when Johnson just kicked a rock. But he didn't just kick it. He kicked it as hard as he could. And the pain that the rock caused him could hardly be denied. There really was a rock there. There really was a material world that was being sensed. But George Berkeley would and did note that all anyone could really know about the rock was its shape, location, color, i.e. information from the senses, including the sense of pain, if you're stupid enough to kick the rock as hard as you can. All this really proves is that our senses are coordinated. Berkeley was famous for saying, to be is to be perceived. So what happens to things when we're not looking at them, not touching them or kicking them or interacting with the material world with our minds in any way? Do those things vanish every time we turn around? If we start a fire in the fireplace and then leave for a while, when we come back, the fire has burned down to ashes. There was no one there to see or perceive the fire, and yet the fire obviously continued to burn. We can see it in the results. Did the fire vanish simply because there was no human mind to perceive it? And Berkeley said, of course not. Things in the material world, as collections of qualities, always remain. But they remain in God's mind. God is the permanent perceiver. And so God encompasses everything. This, of course, then makes an argument for the existence of God and, in fact, the necessity of God for the continuation of the physical world. Something which, again, delivers that knockout punch to atheism, according to George Berkeley. Another statement for which Berkeley is well known, perhaps for which he is best known, is this question. When a tree falls in a forest and there is no one around to hear it, 
does it make a sound? One might argue that in the absence of a human mind to perceive it, that no sound truly can be said to exist. But this was not the answer that Berkeley gave. By now you may already be guessing. Berkeley's answer was that of course the tree made a sound when it fell because God was there to hear it. Now this is perhaps the purest and most eloquent version of idealism ever. And Berkeley went on to spend some time in Rhode Island, in America, waiting for a startup grant for a college in Bermuda, which never arrived. Berkeley, California is named for Bishop George Berkeley. He became the Anglican Bishop of Cloyne in 1734, and he died in Oxford in 1753 at the age of 68. Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz Leibniz was born June 21, 1646. His father was a professor of philosophy at the University of Leipzig. Little Gottfried was a boy genius. He received his doctorate at the young age of 20. From there, he spent some time gallivanting around Europe, tasting just about every philosophy that the continent had to offer. In 1672, Leibniz went to France as a diplomat. There, he would begin to invent calculus, as well as a calculator that could multiply and divide. In 1676, he visited Spinoza in Holland, where he read the manuscript for Spinoza's ethics. And then he went on to Hanover to serve the prince there. In 1700, Leibniz founded the Berlin Academy. His major life's project was to affect the reconciliation of Catholicism and Protestantism. He failed, obviously. It will take a lot more than genius to reconcile those two. But Leibniz's major work, as far as psychology is concerned, is New Essays on Human Understanding. This was a refutation of the work of John Locke. It was written in 1703, but it wasn't published until 1765. Leibniz's basic point in the new essays was that the mind is not a passive tabula rasa, a clean slate, a blank piece of paper, upon which experience writes. This was the view of Locke and Aristotle. The mind, he said, is a complex thing that works on and transforms experience. Paraphrasing Locke, he said, quote, Nothing is in the mind that has not been in the senses, and then added, except the mind itself. Now, this would inspire Immanuel Kant and many psychologists in more recent times. Leibniz also suggested that while we are alive, the mind is never entirely at rest, even in deep sleep. In fact, the mind is often functioning, even when we are not conscious of its doing so. This was the conception of the unconscious that would influence Schopenhauer and later Sigmund Freud. Chapter 
Now, Leibniz had a very unusual metaphysics. He started with the same sort of skeptical approach as Descartes, but he ended with an idealistic metaphysics called monadology that outdoes even Berkeley's metaphysics. Monads are souls. Each soul contains within it the perception of the entire universe. It's not that there is an entire universe outside of our souls which we perceive as an object. Souls are all there is. And we often experience ourselves as interacting with others. Monad a monad, you might say. But Leibniz makes it clear that we are only apparently interacting, each within our own internal universe. Monads, he tells us, are windowless. We consciously perceive only a small piece of this internal universe, our point of view, we could say. I am not aware, however, of what the insides of my stomach look like, or what thoughts that you are having at this moment, or what's happening on some planet circling Alpha Centauri. All that and more is in me, but it is only perceived unconsciously. Each soul has its own point of view. All souls contain the same total perception of the universe. This is what Leibniz called harmony. But some souls have a clearer, more complete, more conscious view of the universe within than other souls do. Only one soul is totally conscious, or if you like, contains all points of view, and that soul is God. Leibniz became increasingly isolated and impoverished over time, being without a political sponsor. He died alone in 1716, and his funeral was attended only by his secretary. Pierre Bale. Pierre Bale was born November 18, 1647. The son of a Huguenot or Protestant minister in southern France, he was sent to a Jesuit college in order to get the best education, and he was converted to Catholicism there. When he returned, he converted back to Protestantism. Now, this made him a relapsed heretic, a very dangerous thing to be at the time. So his father sent young Pierre Bale to Geneva to study, where Bale discovered Descartes. He taught for a while in France, but then found it necessary to escape to Rotterdam in Holland, where he eventually became a professor. He suffered from headaches and depression and never married. In 1682, Bale anonymously published Diverse Thoughts on the Comet. Referring to a recent comet that had everyone abuzz, he wrote against the various superstitions of his day and the belief in miracles. In the book, Bale noted that as far as actions and morality are concerned, he could see no difference between Catholics and Protestants, 
Christians and Jews and Muslims and pagans and, and even atheists. In 1684, in the city of Amsterdam, Pierre Bale began a magazine called News of the Republic of Letters. He wrote all of the articles himself. In the meantime, both his parents and his brother were killed during the persecution of the Huguenots. So, Bale wrote a book on tolerance. But tolerance was not on the Protestant agenda either, and he lost his professorship. Quote, God preserve us from the Protestant Inquisition. End quote. His major work was the dictionary, which was really more of an encyclopedia of philosophy, religion, literature, etc. Writing 14 hours a day, he wrote 2,600 pages. In this massive work, he deconstructed, as we might say nowadays, a great number of biblical stories, religious beliefs, and philosophical theories, including such tidbits as the doctrine of original sin and the Trinity. He even suggested that if God and Satan actually exist, Satan is winning. He would always add, after making these extreme statements, that, of course, no good Christian would ever believe such a thing. But after years of condemnation by the religious establishment, Pierre Bale died of tuberculosis on December 28, 1706. But the dictionary would become immensely popular among intellectuals throughout Europe and have a great influence on thinkers for more than a century. Auguste Comte's Calendar Since the time of the Enlightenment, philosophers and scientists have been trying to make human life a little more rational. Decimal-based monetary systems, for example, began in the United States in 1786 on the insistence of Thomas Jefferson. The system was adopted in France in 1793 with decimes and centimes. These terms, meaning tenths and hundredths, became our dimes and cents. The Italians didn't adopt the system until 1862, and it didn't get to the British until 1971. Similarly, the French introduced the metric system in 1795. By the end of the 1900s, almost all countries have adopted it, the United States being the notable exception this time. Far more resistant to rationalization has been time. Now, it doesn't seem that we are ever going to change the 60-second minute, the 60-minute hour, the 24-hour day, but at least these are consistent and international. The calendar has likewise resisted change, but not for a lack of ideas. You see, the year of 365 days is 4 times 7 times 13 plus 1. And on leap years, we add another one, which means that there are several simple schemes that we could be using for our calendar. For example, we could have four seasons of 13 weeks of seven days each, plus one and another on leap years, 
or we can look at the calendar developed by Auguste Comte. Now, the calendar was developed in 1849, and Comte published a 13-month calendar, which he called the Positivist Calendar. It consisted of 13 months of 28 days each, exactly four weeks. And there was an extra day at the end of the year, which had no weekday assigned to it, and one more extra day on leap years. Every year begins on Monday. The calendar begins in 1789, which would be year one. So, for instance, the year 2010 would be 222. Each month would look exactly the same. And these are the names of the months that Comte proposed. Moses, Homer, Aristotle, Archimedes, Caesar, St. Paul, Charlemagne, Dante, Gutenberg, Shakespeare, Descartes, Frederick II, and Bichat. Individual days in the calendar were dedicated to significant persons in fields related to the month. So, for instance, Moses the 14th is Buddha. Aristotle the 21st, Socrates. Gutenberg the 7th is Columbus. Shakespeare the 28th is Mozart, and the 28th of Descartes is Hume. I suppose that I don't need to tell you, it never caught on. Now, there were other calendar suggestions, both before and after Comte's, and perhaps the most famous is the French Revolutionary Calendar. It was invented by a committee and was adopted by the convention in October of 1793. The calendar was divided into 12 months of 30 days each, leaving five days, six days during leap year, at the end of the last month. Those five or six days were to be known as a series of national holidays. The French Revolutionary Calendar was used in France for 12 years, until Napoleon changed it back. Much more recently, the World Calendar was introduced by Elizabeth Archelaus in 1930. She founded the World Calendar Association October 21st, of 1930. It was gaining great international support until World War II interrupted civilized discussion. Reintroduced to the United Nations after the war, worldwide adoption was thwarted by the United States in 1955. American politicians could not afford to alienate the religious right, who were upset by the idea that once a year there would be an extra day, making it eight days between one Sunday and the next, not in keeping with the biblical tradition. The organization for the World Calendar moved to Ottawa and became the International World Calendar Association. Sadly, the UN setback led to demoralization of the World Calendar supporters. Now, with the advent of the Internet, there is again a small movement for the adoption of the World Calendar voicing its support. The world calendar consists of 12 months divided into four quarters. Each quarter begins on a Sunday with a 31-day month. They are then followed by two 30-day months. And at the end of the year, an extra day is appended to bring the total number of days to 365. This last day is called World Day. 
It doesn't have a weekday designation, and it's conceived of as an international holiday, much like New Year's Eve. Every fourth year, an extra day is added to the sixth month. It, too, has no weekday designation and is thought of as an international holiday. By this method, we would have the same calendar every year. The world calendar would present us with the fewest changes as to how we perceive weeks, months, and years. Plus, it leaves us with four identical seasons or quarters. A great help for business finances. Unfortunately, there is still enormous resistance to simple, sensible ideas like these. If you'd like to learn more about the world calendar, you can Google World Calendar or see Rick McCarty's homepage for calendar reform. Conclusions As we enter the 1700s, we find religion fighting a losing battle against the forces of reason and science. While average people still went to church, baptized their babies, and prayed for forgiveness, the educated elite turned to deism, pantheism, and even atheism. This included the great intellectuals of Catholic France, as well as our future founding fathers in colonial America, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and even George Washington were deists. And John Adams, the second president of the United States, was a Unitarian. Scientific discovery and invention would steamroller traditional society for the next 300 years. Psychology would attempt to follow, but would lag behind for some time to come. <laughs> 